0: Tonight I'm going to do an introduction to numbers, and uh, that means I'll, I'll be in through the book a little bit, but also be in the New Testament quite a bit to show you uh, just great correlation to that as we look at Christ. He's the center of all the scriptures, so if you know me, we're going we're gonna to find him there and, and look at that. But we're going to give a good overview so we know where we're going, and next week we'll start into the first several chapters, um, and uh, they're, they're quite, quite amazing passages. I thought maybe we'd start just in the front row and work our way back here and everybody could read all these lists of Hebrew names, but then I thought maybe you guys would leave on me and I would be by myself. just the Maybe Sheely, the Hebrew teacher, and I. So uh, We won't do that. Uh, Father, thank you for time to be in your word today. It is uh, such a precious thing. There's just nothing like it, Lord. It's a reflection of you. It is without error. It's authoritative it's comforting it reflects your characteristics lord and so we are so grateful to open our bibles to own bibles to have several of them paper electronic and at any moment we can hear from our great god and savior and know that every word he tells us is perfect and without flaw in any way so, Lord, help us handle it correctly, but help us always be learning and growing and doing and believing and becoming more like your son. So we thank you for our Old Testament, too. We're so grateful for it, Lord. It sure teaches us your character and who you are. and We know you don't change, Lord, because you don't need to change. And So we can learn so much from you. And so, Lord, thank you. And we bless the study through the book of Numbers. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years back, I was talking to a pastor of a very extremely charismatic church, and she told me that they never use the Old Testament because it has no value. I was brokenhearted to hear that. I think many churches today don't study the Old Testament, and it reflects in their poor view of God. God's character is always on display, isn't it? And when we study the Bible, we learn of God. That's what we do. We desire to know God. And certainly we know Him even more, and I'm going to talk about this today, through the Lord Jesus Christ, the full revelation of God and all who He is is in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But to not study the Old Testament would limit you in your view of who God is damage your view of marriage and gender terribly. <laughs> you would not see God equal in love and justice. You would fail to really balance the biblical view of his characteristics. And so it is quite important for us to study the Old Testament, and I'm glad you're here when you teach on like Leviticus like we went through in the spring, and Numbers, you wonder if anybody's going to come. Because <laughs> sometimes we get in these books and you notice the first... Oh, quite a few chapters, lots of names and numbers and all that stuff. And, and when we read through, we kind of skip through that because we want to get to the good narrative part. But there's so much truth in there, and we all hit on that as we go along. Well, Numbers is a fascinating book. Um, its English name, Numbers, that we got came from Greek translations of the book. And, it, and And there they kind of focused more on the numbering of the tribes. Remember, titles and numbers within the uh, verses and chapters and all that stuff was added later so we could find our way around in the Bible. And so these terms came out that they gave headings or, or names to these books, and here this one came from focusing on the numbers of the tribes and the Levitical priesthood. And in the names which the Greek translations came up for the other four books, they they seem to make a little more sense or a little maybe better description of the content. Genesis the beginning, right? We really see the beginning of a lot of things. Creation and nations, the birth of a nation and so forth. Uh, Exodus, the great Exodus of, of Israel leaving, um, leaving the, the Egypt that had held them as slaves. Leviticus, we saw the role of the Levite, right? The priesthood and God's sacrificial system, how he's going to dwell with this people. Deuteronomy is called the second law in some some ways. Uh, It's a a repeat, the law repeated, and clarification and Moses' sermons add all kinds of application to the law there. And uh, and as they get ready to enter the promised land, we'll get into Deuteronomy later on. But, But the Hebrew name for the book of Numbers gives a little better description. It's called the wilderness. That's uh, what it's called. In the wilderness. And you see that in the very first verse there. Um, within the first five words in the Hebrew text, you find this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. And it's just an excellent description of the majority of the book. Uh, the Numbers title is, is fitting to the description of the first verse. 14 chapters and a few other places where there's some numbering going on later on in the book as it takes it takes in count of all of those things and tribes and and who's ready for war and so forth but the largest percentage of the book is about the nation rejecting god particularly the 10 spies who turned the hearts of the people and they are now disciplined and sent out to the wilderness there for that older generation to die off and so we find the word wilderness, I think, 48 times in the book. 48 times uh, this, this book uses the word wilderness. And I think that's a great des- depiction of it. It's a land that was uh, difficult to live in. It could sustain livestock, which they needed, but it could not sustain millions of people that were with the nation of Israel. And so we'll see that God provides water and, and food supernaturally to his people. And, and it'll be fun because that's going to land us where? It's going to land us right back in John 4. It's going to land us in John 6. And we're going to see a water where you'll never thirst and a, and a food that, that will never be hungry again. All referring to the gospel and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that is picturing and foreshadowing. But in the book, we'll study them going through the land, and their shoes won't wear out, and, and He'll feed them, and, and it's amazing what God does. All to prepare for the coming of His own Son that will do everything in a greater way. After giving them the law in Leviticus, um, it seems that there's about a month from the book of Leviticus after they got the law and the instructions and all how to handle the sacrifices there's about a month as they prepare at Mount Sinai, getting ready to set out for the border at Canaan. And while in the wilderness, the nation of Israel will interact with some interesting characters, won't they? We'll see Well, they'll come upon, um, let me say this, some of the consequences of the patriarchs that went before them, particularly in Genesis. They'll run into the relatives of Cain. They'll have difficulties with Ishmael's descendants. Moab, the daughters of Lot, will be a problem to them. And so there's much to learn of consequences of sin and how God graciously helps us through those consequences, but yet they're there. The book will focus on the life of the nation two years after its exodus to its 40th year. That's what it looks at. There's about a total of 38 years that it looks intently at. But because of sin, the nation, which I think was very fascinating as I thought about this this week, they they really take about 40 years and they lose, not all of it, but they lose the taste of the goodness of God because of their sin. They wander around in a wilderness under the disciplined hand of God and don't get, most of them do not get to see the goodness of God in so many ways. And it's not that God was not good to them, even in their sinful state, as they reject Him and wandered around in the desert. He fed them, and their shoes didn't worn out, and so forth. But He had a promised land for them. He had something so much better, and yet their sin drugged them away. And so as we study the history... We see it recorded in the book of Numbers. It teaches us that sin will cause you to waste your best years if you don't deal with it. It'll rob you of that. And that happens all the time. I, too many people we meet with where they said, oh, pastor, I wish I would depended of this so long ago. I lost so much time with wife or husband or kids or whatever it is. Numbers will teach us that. As the Hebrew title suggests, the book contains a description of the wilderness journey of the Israelites and where they traveled around until that older generation dies off. We'll examine that. But the book of Exodus tells us that they left Egypt. And that was an important thing. And it traces them all the way to Sinai. And now it traces them to the border, to the rejection of God, and then traces them around. Uh, and I'll show you some graphs. traces you around the wilderness there. But then it comes back, and we'll see this as we get into Deuteronomy, that Deuteronomy focuses on Moses' instructions as he prepares the people yet again to enter the promised land. There are those sermons in Deuteronomy. I'm very excited to preach those someday. Um, uh, They are the application of the law and such great instruction about God. He is preparing them, yet he himself will not go in because of his own sin. And so we're... When we come to Numbers, we're, we're at that place. The, the Leviticus, Leviticus has been just given, and the whole of the law, and how it was to be carried out. And now they're, now they're building, and they're getting a tabernacle ready, and they're, they're getting ready for the sacrificial system, and they're about ready to leave Mount Sinai and make their way to the border of Canaan. Joshua, just this, to think through this, Joshua is how they entered the land. And we'll, maybe I'll keep going. Joshua is such a fun book. I, I really want to preach it as well someday. But I, but I love this because as, as I studied this, as I studied these Israelites and began to look at what God has done so far, he brought them out of Egypt, this place of slavery and oppression. And, and we're reminded of that great example, of this physical God. physically God removes them out of slavery, takes them from their shackles and, and really just damnation that they were under there. He brings them out and he rescues them and reconciles them and changes their position from slave to his people. It's quite amazing. He all does that through blood. Remember the doorpost, the blood of the innocent animal is that substitution for them. And the death angel passes by when he sees that they have a substitute. All of that pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we go through this and we look at this people that has been redeemed, we will remind ourselves that we were brought out of slavery as well, we were purchased by Christ's blood. His redeeming work has freed us, and we have tasted the saving power of God. And we know it in its fullest. But for the nation of Israel, this was just a foreshadowing that Passover is, is such a beautiful thing. It, was, it really is a foreshadowing of something even greater, those doorposts and all of that, of Christ and His finished work and His sacrificial work for our life, and I want, you, I want to remind you as we go through this, we passed from death and judgment to life, and the nation of Israel is a physical example of that, and yet they rebelled against God. I was thinking much about the Passover this week, because you get studying study then this, you drop right back in there, and as cool as the Passover is, we don't celebrate it. We don't. We appreciate it. We we don't mind seeing a Seder every once in a while to remind us because it points forth. You know what we celebrate? The death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things as we study the Old Testament it reminds us there's something greater. There's a greater sacrifice. There's a greater feast. There's a greater Savior. There's a greater mediator. There's a greater priest. There's greater, 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 and it all comes to Jesus, doesn't it? And you're going to see that in this book. You're going to see a bronze servant, serpent lifted up. And he's going to say, Look and live. And Jesus is going to use that about himself. You say, He's a serpent? Yeah, because he is scorned for our sin. And we look upon him and we'll make that connection as we go through this book together. But Christians, we are in a wilderness too at times, don't we? (laughs) I thought about this as I wrote this introduction. The book is largely about the nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness. Now, they're wandering there because they rejected God, didn't they? But I think the Christian in this present life is like them in some ways. We are pilgrims and strangers in a foreign land, right? I mean, it doesn't take hard to look at this world and go, this is a wilderness of sin. It it doesn't look hard to look at life here and how difficult it is. Death reigns on this fallen world. Everyone dies and then judgment, the Bible says. And so we, we realize that, but, but the Bible reminds us of this journey, right? 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, right? That's who we are, to abstain from fleshly lusts, which rages war against your soul. So we are God's people, and we are wandering through a world where sin has made it a wilderness. But we've got to pass through this sin-corrupted world. We do, don't we? We're, we're not of it. We're in it, but we're not of it. And so we will learn how to live in this world, how to keep our eyes on God as we go through the difficult experiences of fallen world. Every couple of summers, I sit down and read the abridged version of Pilgrim's Progress. When's the last time you read that? Maybe you've never read it. <laughs> um, if you'd like to see me afterwards, I'll give you a link to... Uh, to a abridged version of that a couple years ago, I think it was. I'm looking for staff members. We we took our staff through it and read through the sections of it at, a, at staff meeting, and it just encouraged our souls because it's such a very good depiction as Christian and faithful and others go through this life on this fallen world as they work their way to the celestial city and all the trappings that are there. I think we'll see that. But we come back to the book, and we, I think one of the glaring truths is we find that the nation really rejects God's word is what they reject. You remember what will happen. They get to the border, and the ten spies come back, and they, oh, yeah, it's everything they said, but, man, there's giants there. We're like grasshoppers. And they, what they do in that is they reject God's word. And Joshua and Caleb stand up and say, God said it wasn't enough. And that sent the people into judgment, didn't it? So, the book of Numbers reminds us that God's holy and his word is perfect. I like that. I mean, there's tough things sometimes. We come across, we look at the Bible, and we read. Uh, you know, it's why, why we teach expositionally, because I, I can't skip anything, right? I just took on head coverings a couple weeks ago. <laughs> we're, we're moving into the table this Sunday. I mean, and you're going to see Paul extremely fired up with the misuse of one of the beautiful demonstrations that we have an opportunity of pure worship in. He's going to take after that, probably as hard as he's taken after anything. But we we look at that and we learn, because we believe the Word of God is perfect, that it's, it's infallible, and so we put our trust in it. And when we do that, we see the holiness of God, and that matters. It matters to believe God. And, and brothers and sisters, it's going to... It's always been something the church has had to hold on to, but man, the wave that's coming. We've got to hang on to the perfection of God's Word. When you reject it, what happens is you start to act and think how to accomplish things through your own flesh. Now, when we say that, we go, well, that's pretty dumb. But that's what we do often we'll make major decisions in our life and never consult the word of God of what it has to say to make that decision. And so we reject the perfect word of God and go to our own flesh thinking that there's a better way and we find ourselves in the wilderness. Anybody been out there? I've seen some of you. How you doing? What you out here for? Didn't believe God. You learn anything? Yeah. (laughs) I've Been there. Been out ahead of God, found myself out there. Kind of a comforting place to be at times, right? Well, the Apostle Paul refers to this book, um, and we looked at this. Turn with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This book is an example to the church. And it's one of the reasons why we didn't want to skip it, we wanted to study it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is a great reminder you might remember this as we studied this not too long ago. Verse 1, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers who were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, right? Exodus, right? And all baptized into Moses into the cloud, they were identified with this intercessor, Moses, who brought them to God and showed them who God was and what his word was and and so forth, in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate of the same spiritual food, and all drank of the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which, flowed, which followed them, and the rock was Christ. All of this was pointing forward. Paul's not hiding his Christological view of the Old Testament in any way there, is he? But look at this. Nevertheless, with them, most of them, God was not well-pleased. I said I have this land for you. I will put a fear in them and they will flee from you. I will drive them out. I will give you houses you have not built, vineyards you have not planted. That was God's word. And they came up against it and said, "Nope, can't do it." And so Paul says, God wasn't pleased with them. Verse 6. Now these things happened as an examples what for who? For us so that we would not crave evil things that they also craved. And when you reject God's word, guess what happens? Idolatry starts to come in. Idolatry of self and desires that you want. And so he warns of idolatry. And all that comes with them the debauchery of eating and drinking and playing and all the things that, that are not in the will of God follow closely behind idolatry as we said back when we studied this is immorality verse 8 23 thousand fell in one day numbers chapter 25 we'll see that grumbling excuse me let us not try God verse 9 it tests God some of them demon and were destroyed by the serpents numbers chapter 21 That led to grumbling because they didn't trust God. They didn't think He was capable nor His choice of the leaders that He had risen up. And so they grumbled and God destroyed them by the destroyer, Numbers chapter 16. We'll see that. And and now these things, look at verse 11, happened to them as an example and they were written for our instructions upon whom the ends of the age have come. And so what an important book to study Numbers. So many different passages there represent those things so there's important lessons that we'll learn as we go through the book of numbers several things that i want to just have you begin to think about is first it's important that we understand the history of god's dealing with the nation of israel and and it's a vital stage of biblical theology remember biblical theology is flow it's it's the truth of god's word flowing towards the fulfillment in christ And so this is a vital step in that. And so we see things where Christ is very represented from the water to the serpents to the rocks to the bread that they're fed and so forth. We'll see that. So it's important to study the history of the nation of Israel in uh, in accordance to biblical theology. Uh, We've got to learn from these many facts and lessons of history. And as they say, if you don't learn from history, you're bound to what? Repeat it, right? And that's why Paul here... You know, 4,000 years later, excuse me, um, of course, 1,500 years later is saying to the Corinthian church, hey, (laughs) these things were done for your instruction, for examples for you, because you're repeating them. You're doing exactly what the nation did before. So we must come to an understanding how God displays His grace and His mercy, but also how He disciplines and how He brings judgment. We must understand those things. I think what happens with so many churches today is the only attribute they really study of God is love. And so they elevate God's love over every other attribute. So that tells us very clearly that God, in their eyes, is deficient. Anytime we say, and it's just fun to ask people, I go, what's the greatest attribute of God? Oh, God, God's love, that's greater than all of his attributes. Really? So he's a little less than others? So when we study this, it makes us understand, yes, he's a God of all, he's gracious and mercy beyond imagination to these people, right? His seed is going to come through them. And yet we see his wrath and his anger and righteousness and justice and holiness all on an equal plane of his character as we study the Old Testament, particularly in our study of Numbers. So it's important to understand that. We will see as we study this the aspects of God's care of a nation whom he has who he's chastising he's chastising them for their unbelief and you'll be in awe of his love and chastisement and it'll be good for you and me because we'll go under his chastisement every once in a while because he disciplines the ones he loves and we'll need to be reminded that he loves you because sometimes when we go through discipline you'd feel unloved but god loves the ones he disciplines Second, the book will help us understand that the New Testament writers greatly rely on the Old Testament scriptures, right? They didn't have the New Testament, so so they relied on the Old Testament. They believed it was about Christ, and so they used those Old Testament texts to preach Christ, as we see Paul doing that in 1 Corinthians 10. So God's mercy and grace and truth find their greatest revelation in Jesus Christ. So that's why we always jump back and forth to the New Testament from the Old Testament and so forth. Look at Look at um, John chapter one. I just want to remind you of this truth. You're probably already still in the New Testament. Flip over to John one. These are so that this opening prologue, which is 18 verses of John, is just just a mind blowing passage of just endless study. But I want to drop down to verses 16 through 18 here, because. The, Numbers, like all of the Old Testament, is going to push us forward to see the fulfillment of Christ. Verse 16 says, For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The fullness of Christ is now on display. We've received grace upon grace. We just sang that, a song relating to this verse on Sunday that Hayward led us in. But look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. As important as it was... We have to understand God has a law, and if you break his law, there's death that comes with it. Again, another reason that I think the church in many facets and places is failing is because they don't know the law of God. They don't understand that, that God is a standard, and when that gets broken at conception and, uh, and at birth, um, you know, we just understand we're sinners at birth, right? And we don't understand that. We don't, need a, we don't need a great Savior. We just need a little Savior. So the law was given through Moses. It's important to understand that. But grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. I love that statement. And so everything's got to trail forward. If you just stay on the, the Old Testament, and this is our dear friends who are Orthodox Jews or, or caught heavy in the deeper... Uh, Seventh-day movements and some of those who are who are caught up in some of that movements, they, they don't have joy. They don't experience grace and truth because they're still trying to find something through the law to gain, to gain righteousness from. And outside of being perfect, they'll never gain it. And so the law comes from Moses, but grace and truth are realized, understood, manifested to us through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. This is very important. So those Manifestations of God or the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. That statement tells us the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and the oneness that He has with the Father. What a what an intimate statement that is about Christ and the Father. There isn't it? And then look at this last phrase. He has explained Him. He has exegeted Him. So when, I, when I've already been in Numbers quite a while, reading it over and over and getting ready to work on preaching this, um, I, I keep seeing Him. <laughs> I keep understanding God more because God is fully explained in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessing that is. Thirdly, there's another rich spiritual lesson for Christians that we'll see in the book of Numbers as we watch the nation of Israel wander through, and that's the lesson of provision It touches us already, but God provides for His people. I think we really need to hear that. American Christians aren't used to suffering. But we may see it in our lifetime, dear brothers and sisters. Our children or our children's children may see it in an even greater way. God will provide no matter what, whether it's discipline from His hand or it is persecution from a lost world, he will provide. He gives guidance through difficulties, and we'll see that in this book. They're in some difficult situations. They're caught between warring uh, pagan tribes out there. He he gives clear direction of what to do, when to fight, when not to fight, when to buy food, when to trust he'll supply. He he gives incredible guidance to his people through difficult situations. He gives a road map, In a time of spiritually dry seasons, that's what he'll do. God had a plan for them as they wandered around in there. And and he'll give us resources that are available to us, both internally for our heart, and then he'll, he'll help us with our daily living, right? As we face the dangers of a fallen wilderness in this world. Like many Old Testament narratives, there's several things Several types of material we see. We'll see historical material where these actual events take place. These are true. They're not made up. These things happened, and we need to believe them. The Bible isn't blowing smoke in some way or has been changed in some way. We really do see these historical events, and we marvel at them. Water does flow from rocks. Bread does fall from heaven. It is supernatural. Supernatural. And that's what people don't want to ever accept. Well, so is my salvation. <laughs> that is the most supernatural thing in the world. He would save this wretch who could not save himself. So when you reject the supernatural of God, feeding and watering and blessing and not letting shoes wear out and so forth, there's, salvation is so far from you. Because it's the greatest supernatural event that he saves wretches like us. There's also legal material in here that's important that presents performances that were intended to be observed by Israel throughout history. And, and we want to look at that because we'll see some of those things in there, some of the fleshing out of Leviticus we'll, we'll see in there. There's another type of material that we see in here, and it's, and it's applied to the wilderness journey here. And, and I want you to remember that here in the law um, we, we see certain things given to the nation of Israel that are not given to us, and we need to be careful of them. I remember doing a Bible study out in the deserts of Nevada and Southern. So I'm out in this Bible study, and this group of women came up to me, and they said, we have figured it out. We were studying the Old Testament, and we now have the diet God wants to have. It's called the Daniel diet, and now we're all on it. There are certain things God gives to the nation of Israel that He's not given to you. We will not be putting a pole with a snake on it. I know the medical industry has used some of that on their logos. I think that's pretty cool. But we're not going to do that. So you can't read the Old Testament and you have to realize there are certain things God gave for the nation to do. He's pointing something to so much greater and yet what do people want to do? We want to go to the lesser. Let's do the Daniel diet. Let's put a pole up. Let's do these things that often distract people from the truth. And so those are one of the things we really want to understand because remember the law was completely, 100% fulfilled in Christ. He had to do that as he ushered in. He had fulfilled the first to usher in the second, Hebrews tells us. And now we have this complete union with Christ and we don't need to find fulfillment in things he gave Israel to do. We worship at those things. We see the greater picture. And remember, the entire book is, is inspired by God. Every jot and tittle, I think we tend to love the narratives. And, and I know when you're reading through the Bible, if you're doing daily, and you get to the book of Numbers, and the first 14 chapters are a little difficult. Um, chapter 5 is, ooh, we're going to have to mix some dirt and water, and you're going to find out if the adulterous woman is impure. We'll get into that. There's some great lessons there. Um, uh, there's, but all these names and stuff. But yet every one of these sections, even the mundane statistical Um, sections, they are inspired and they do offer important details to the time and in the reality of what's going on. We have real names. We have real tribes. We have real people who are going through this as God leads them by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud of day. And so these names and times are important. And so the book of Numbers, like the rest of the Bible, has been well preserved. And when when they found uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that little shepherd boy threw a rock in there and broke a pot, and it all led to finding all these Old Testament and other writings that were in there. They began to realize how accurate our Bibles are, especially our Old Testament, uh, through those scrolls. Extremely accurate. And we love that, right? And so Moses is the human writer, but we know that it's so accurate because the Holy Spirit is the author of it, isn't he? But again, Moses plays an extreme, important role here, and I want to talk about him for just a little bit. Chapter 11, verse 28, chapter 12, verse 11, 32, 35, 36, 3 they all refer to this term where guys like Joshua and Aaron's and tribe members call him my Lord, little L. There was great respect for Moses. And listen, Moses was called by God for an unusually heavy, <laughs> unusually heavy ministry to shepherd this nation of Israel. And Moses, he never lorded it over them. He's a great example for leaders to, to study, even though he does have some outbursts and it cost him. And, and, I, and I've actually learned to appreciate that a little bit. Um, uh, but, but for the most part, he, he never lords anything over. And we see that when he, even when he's accused in Numbers chapter 16 in Korah's rebellion, they attack him and accuse him. And then we find out it's just opposite. He, he is who God made him to be. And, and during the passage, you'll see that it brings to light, even in this dark period of Israel's history, whether going through that, that Moses is truly a man of God. And I think when Israel stoops into dark opposition to God during this time, they even, <laughs> I mean, it, they reject God. God threatens, there's a big lesson here, we'll see, threatens to wipe all of them out, and start over with Moses. And to show the kind of man Moses was, he goes, well, I think that's a good idea. I'm tired of him, too. That's <laughs> not so what he does. In fact, the man Moses, who's suffering under heavy indictments by a tribe group called the, the Korites, he stands between them and God. And you see him ready to suffer and care the guilt that deserve, they deserved upon himself. Well, who does that remind you of? Remember why these are types. He's pointing to something greater. Look, look with me at Psalms 90. Psalms 90. This is the Psalm of Moses. I read this this morning. found great encouragement in it. We don't know when he wrote this, but shepherding the nation of Israel was no piece of cake. And so you see his heart in this. Let me read this to you. Psalms 119. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, oh, or, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, from even, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Just look at the theology that comes out of this man. This is how he speaks. Don't tell me he didn't understand predestination, foreknowledge of God. I mean, it's just all through there, right? Verse 3 you turn man back into dust. He's comparing the greatness of God to man and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it bypasses, when it passes by, or a watch in the night. You have swept away like a flood. They have fallen fallen asleep. And in the morning, they are like grass which sprout anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards evening, it fades and withers away. Man, just just like grass. This doesn't last. Verse 7, For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. He saw the judgment of God, didn't he, on people? You have... Placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. David says, very simply says, "All my sins were done in your presence." That's really a good, good remedy to help us not sin. Jesus sees everything. God sees everything. Verse nine: "For all our days have declined in your fury, and we have finished our years like a sigh. I mean, this could be written Why he's wandering. It's watching people just drop dead over these 40 years, these people who rejected his word. Verse 10, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or due to strength, maybe 80 years. And yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? And be sorry over your servants. So satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make make us glad according to the days that you have afflicted us. Man, that could could be coming right out of that wandering, huh? In the years, we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to your children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Confirm for us the work of your hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Maybe towards the end of that, they wondered if they'd ever get in the promised land. Forty years and funeral after funeral after funeral. Moses pours his heart out as he shepherds a difficult people. Moses um, does express righteous anger. Hopefully you can get back to Numbers with me. He reflects our Lord a little bit. Numbers chapter 16. I'm just trying to give you some overview of what we're going to study. Korah's rebellion has started. He sat and listened to them for a while. He gave them opportunity to express themselves in their sinful grumbling. And then Moses replies in verse 15. He says, The Bible says, Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. They were making false allegations. Chapter 20. We see his unrighteous anger. Verse 10. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels. He's not happy with them. He's moving away from the words of God into his own flesh at this point. And he says this, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Isn't it interesting, the Pharisees believe that Moses gave them all that stuff? They actually picked up on his false truth. (coughs) And Jesus corrects it. Then Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly in the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sights of the sons of Israel... Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given you. Joshua ends up doing that. And so we see these things. And, but I want to remind you as we study this most instances, Moses came forward and he acted like a very great godly prophet of what he was most of the time. Over and over you'll hear the expressions, the Lord spoke to Moses, the Lord commanded Moses, Uh, 139 times in the book of Numbers, you see where God is communicating with people, with the people through Moses. One more reference on God's man, Moses, is chapter 12. Here we find the murmuring and jealousy of Miriam and Aaron, family members, rise up. And then we see what, what Moses says. Look at chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 6. He said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make, make myself known to him in a vision. So God's going to say, Let me show you who my man is and who isn't. And I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my household. With him I speak, mouth to mouth, even openly. And not in dark sayings, and he he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So we're going to see that God raises up these leaders and he establishes them, and particularly Moses here. So I love to think about that, that the almighty sovereign God has a dialogue with Moses. It's it's amazing. It's face-to-face. It's personal. And I think, as I studied and was working through this today even, I thought the most highest thing about Moses' ministry is his face-to-face this relationship that he has with God the Father and probably done through the pre-incarnate Christ. So Moses is God's servant. He's deemed worthy to stand in his presence. And we see him do that from Exodus all the way through the book of Numbers. Now, the book of Numbers... Um, is dominated by Moses. Um, and he, he's often, the books are often called the books of Moses. And Numbers is often referred to as the fourth book of Moses in extra-biblical material. So, I mean, he has his prints all over this. i got to quickly go because I want to show you a few New Testament references. Um, the Old Testament, we said the Old Testament, it's, it's divided up in some ways, right? You have the Pentateuch, the first five books, you, which we call the law or the books of Moses. We have the prophets, which within them are the history books, right? Then we have the, the writings or the wisdom literature, the Psalms and Job's and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and so forth. We have those. But the New Testament, when it quotes the law, often says, Moses said. So, so this is how important that Moses' role was to God, and even in the New Testament it's recorded that way. And I wanted to show you that, that Christ makes it extremely clear that Moses wasn't the man, but Moses wanted everyone to worship Christ. Look at, look at, John, look at John 5 with me real quick. It's really hard to write these introductions because there's so much to talk about. Um, but I hope you're staying with me. i just got a few more minutes here. I want to show you some New Testament patterns here. Jesus has been showing them that they really don't search the Scriptures to understand Jesus. In verse 39, he says, you search the Scriptures thinking that you'll find eternal life. You're wrong. They testify about me who gives you eternal life. He, he, he warns them in 44 that they're not seeking the glory of God. They're seeking the glory of themselves. And they love to put Moses as their man. So in, cha- in chapter 5, verse 45, he says this. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. That, that's quite a statement. Jesus is going to be the judge. But the accusation is going to come from who? The one who accuses you, he says to the Pharisee, is Moses. Now look at this phrase, in whom you set your hope. This rattles you when you think of devout um, Sabbatarians, devout law keepers, devout people who hold to, to Christ plus the law or Christ plus anything. Their hope is not in Christ. And he says, this one that you put your hope in, remember Moses was everything to them. The one you put in your hope in, he's speaking about me. Look at verse 46. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. (laughs) For he wrote about me. Numbers 21. (laughs) Deuteronomy, I think it's really referring to Deuteronomy 18, 15. There's a greater prophet coming, Moses speaks about. But verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, and look at this. This is why we interpret them correctly. How will you believe my words? So, so the strict law keepers that are out there, they never, see, they never see Christ because they don't interpret the Old Testament correctly. Do you see that in the text? You wonder why they're blind. They'll, they'll dress funny and do all kinds of things and have all this stuff going on and they never see Jesus even though they, they, they memorize vast passages of the Old Testament. They can't even get Moses right. And if you don't get Moses right, you don't get Christ right. When Luke records Paul's trial in Acts 28, verse 23. He says this When they set out that day for Paul, they came to him as he was lodging in large numbers, and he he was explaining to them solemnly, testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. Now, listen to this from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning to evening. How was he trying to help the Jews? Um, in the synagogues, in all of that. What was he doing? From morning to night, he was persuading them through the Old Testament of Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. That's what he was doing. And so when we study numbers, we got to see that, right? We look at Second Corinthians chapter 3. We find a real problem here with our friends caught under the law. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Catch up with me. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones. Wow, the ministry of death. That's the law shows that we're wages of sin is death, right? In letters, letters engraved on stone came with glory. The law is glorious, no doubt. So that the sons of Israel could not look intently at Moses' face. Because he was with God as he carries this law down to them. Because, the glory, uh, because of the glory of his face fading as it was. So you see, he's tying to the glory that was reflecting off of Moses' face. He's reflecting that and making a relationship between that and the law. The law was fading, and, and, and yet he, he's trying to tie it together that this law is going to fade away, and yet they're so into that. And so Moses shades himself. Look at verse 8. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail even to, to be even more with glory? The Spirit's far greater in its message of the gospel, because the law is going to be fulfilled in the spirit of truth in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, that's the law, right? How much more does the ministry of righteousness found in Christ abound in glory, right? For indeed, what, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. We love the law, but we worship at the thought of the gospel, don't we? And the glory of the law fades away in the, in the glorious glow of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible's telling us. And so that's why we want to help our friends who get caught up in some of these things. They'll lose their joy, they'll lose their way, they'll lose their eternity. Oh, so much more there. The veil lies on the face when the law is read, when Moses is read, but it's taken away in Jesus Christ. This was Moses' goal. Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Moses, when he had grown, refused to be called the sons of Pharaoh's daughters, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now listen to this. Considering the reproach of Christ's greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. What? People will tell you, well, how did they know there was, a, there was a Jesus, there was a Messiah, Christ? They knew. For all the way from Genesis 3.15, when God promised there was a seed that was going to crush the head of the serpent, they knew there was a Messiah, the ones that loved God. And they know it's coming. And so they believed in it. Well, last final thoughts here. There's so much to talk about, and we'll get into this as we go along. Um... Most conservative commentators, when we talk about date a little bit, date the book in the early 1400s B.C. Um, And most likely Numbers was written and compiled probably at the end of Moses' life, at the close of that 40 years um, after Exodus and the wandering in the wilderness. Um, But Numbers begins with God ordering a census. It's very interesting that Pastor Jason preached on David's census. census. (laughs) census on sunday oh god did not order that one in any way shape or form and david Sin greatly and the nation suffered because of David's sin in that. But God, when God wants to do something, it's right because he's perfect in all he does. And so as we look next week, we're going to try to take on several chapters next week and understand why he's counting them and, and getting them ready for war and so forth like that. We'll get a better look at that. And that's how the book opens up. But it ends, I mean, it opens with God numbering his people, preparing the Levitical tribe to be ready to minister um, the sacrifice system, the order of where they all go as they move through the land, and, and, and then it'll end 40 years later. So we have a book that's about 38 to 48 years of the life of the nation of Israel, and so pretty fun to study. It's maybe half of our lives written in one letter when you think about that. After the book of Leviticus, Numbers now shows how the tribe of Levi carries out the law. You'll notice in the beginning he doesn't number the Levitical uh, tribe, ma'am, I'm, I'm done. Right, uh, the Levite tribe. Um, he doesn't number them. They they're they're to be there ministering. Uh, later, we'll see that he does number them and actually arm them. We'll look at that as well. Um, but they're to be there, uh, fulfilling, carrying out the law of God and taking care of the center of worship, which was the tabernacle. But they will experience grace of God and provision and they'll squander it away in this book. And we'll we'll want to look at that and say, God, don't let us squander the grace of God. And then there'll be much detail that's not recorded in there. Um, One thing I just want you to think about. We don't know what the numbers would be, but everyone over 20 dies. I said it already. Can you imagine the amount of funeral services that took place? And as they just moved, the graves they left as they moved through the wilderness. And there's not much recorded about that. But as we think about that, they left a tremendous amount of people in the ground. We'll also be reminded that God is not only extremely gracious, but He's equally a judge. And sin has a wage to it, and it's called death. Will witness his righteous anger. We won't, we won't miss it. I promise you, brothers and sisters, you'll see true what true righteous anger is as God's anger is aroused because of sin. Look, you never see God's anger aroused outside of sin. His anger comes with it. But his faithfulness will highlight the this this promise of a coming seed. He will protect this undeserving nation. He will keep that seed alive through those generations of people who are carrying the seed of Judah. He's in there. The seed is in there. It's being passed from person to person, making its way to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And someday he'll crush the head. So we're going to have a great time. I hope I've whetted your appetite just a little bit um, to go through this book with me. Sunday, where we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, please pray for me as I get ready for that one. Um, we will look in depthly at a church that had become so selfish. They couldn't love one another. They couldn't wait for one another. And they had uh, terribly handled the Lord's table. Last Sunday, i was so glad that Jason led us through the table. Um, we're going to go through this passage uh, for the next few weeks, and then we'll have a table together. And I hope it will really challenge us to use that as pure worship. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time in the Word. May we uh, be reading the book of Numbers. Uh, May we be uh, in the Word constantly because we have this perfect manual given to us. There's nothing like it. It's your words. And so, Lord, we thank you that it reflects you so perfectly. May we be good stewards of it. Thank you for each and every one that come out tonight. Bless them. Give them safe travels home, Lord. And, Lord, we ask that you bring us together soon so we can worship you again corporately. But until that, Lord, may we be great individual worshipers of you. Open our Bibles and pray and read and fellowship and drink in truth, Lord, of our our God and Savior who loves us so much, Lord. Thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.